Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Petronas Podcast. This is episode 73 of the Petronas Podcast. It is Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petronas. And boy, do we have a special treat for you today. This podcast, the, the chunk of the majority of this podcast is going to be part two of my state of the reality response to Joe Biden's State of the Union speech. Um, This is part two, and it's extremely timely because it's going to cover a lot of the issues that have happened that are related to everything happening over the past week and dive in. So this podcast is going to cover um, inflation, the U.S. economy, how much coal China is actually using, the real ESG, stuff that I talk about, what really matters from an ESG perspective, um, what's going on with uh, China and coal use, and how much uh, what the international energy says about net zero and the... issues that we have with publicly traded companies, you know, jumping onto the net zero bandwagon. So all of that will be covered in detail within this um, 35 minute podcast. So it's going to be fantastic guys. But with that being said, uh, it's extremely important to keep you, get you up to speed on what's happening right now, because uh, we've never been in this situation, I think of an unprecedented situation where we have an ongoing war in Europe um, obviously, in modern day times, this has not happened since World War II, but we have an ongoing war. We have um, a, an inflationary environment. We have elevated oil prices. We have low natural gas prices. And we have a continual um, issue, and we have high interest rates. And we're looking to have higher interest rates for longer. So if you're getting whiplash from the stock market, you are not the only one. It, the stock market cannot decide what it really wants to do. And it's all over the place. We saw some massive selling off this week. Um, I put some notes out on LinkedIn and Twitter. You probably saw those videos, but huge, huge sell-off. Now, part of that was because we got Walmart. Um, we got earnings from Walmart and Home Depot. If you were now Walmart, obviously their stock performed higher because Walmart's the stock you want to own um, in a recession. They're going to do well. The problem is if you look at their PE ratio, it's extremely high. And actually, if you look at the Nasdaq, Nasdaq is 26 times on their PE ratio. They are actually a pre. They're the Nasdaq is still at pre-COVID um, 2019 all-time highs um, and really has not slumped that uh, the excess off. So I think there's real risk to the market and that it's just too hot. If you're looking at these individual earnings, you'll see that. So, um, but what Walmart said was that the higher income shopper is still shopping Walmart. And you got to remember that Walmart has 25% of the U.S. market share for groceries. So Walmart is able to weather these uh, recessionary storms a lot better than their peers like Target and others, because everyone's coming to them for groceries. Now, yes, they're getting thinner marginal on groceries, but you know they're able to discount a t-shirt and somebody buys that. So Walmart's able to do a lot with that. But that being said, still discretionary items are things that people slow down on. Home Depot did not fare so well. It wasn't a good story. Look, with, with interest rates as high as they are, and I encourage you all to look at your, when you get your credit card bills in the mail and you see that interest rate on the back, um, or you look at it online, you see the interest rate on the back. It's you're looking at 15 to 20 percent interest if you are not paying off your bill every month. So huge, huge, uh, you know, bills there. Now the other thing we keep hearing, and actually Jamie Dimon even said it, and I like a lot of what he says, but I do disagree with him on the consumer is really healthy. And he said this with an interview with uh, Jim Cramer on CNBC today. Um, 
I, I really disagree with the health of the U.S. consumer. Um, the, the U.S. consumer is still spending. I think we need to be careful with, with equating spending to healthy consumer because um, we're looking. If you're looking at credit card debt, we are now at a trillion dollars in credit card debt. So New York Fed data came out is updated. We have over a trillion dollars in credit card debt that is an all-time record high. That is way higher than we were in 2008, um, or higher than we were in the 2007-2008 crash. Um, so that's extremely problematic. That means people are putting their, their, their spending, but they're putting on credit card debt. Um, we also got some information in today about the, the lags, some of the additional fiscal lags of all the stimulus money that states have been given that they've actually passed on in terms of checks to consumers. So we saw that in Colorado, um, where Jared Polis sent everybody a $750 check. And so there's a little bit of that. All that's extremely inflationary. Also, students have not had to pay off student loans. That has actually been extended through August of this year. That's really serious. That's hundreds of trillions of hundreds of billions of dollars that hasn't been paid off. So all this other debt increases. That's very inflationary. And we saw that in the inflation data last week. That's something we talked about in the podcast in the intro last week. So, and we'll be talking about it in this podcast. So I'm not, I'm going to stop with that, but extremely inflationary, a very, very important to appreciate that sticky inflation, all the, all the pieces and components that are, that are enabling that inflation still. And the fact that we are, we have higher rates. Now the market sold off because of lots of concerns that we're going to have higher rates for longer, that the fed is going to have to continue to raise interest rates and hold it there. And that's, Another problem for stocks is that as those interest rates go higher, that means your high yield savings accounts, that means your CDs, that means um, treasuries, everything, you can put money in it and you can get 5%. And that threatens, I mean, people are looking at a guaranteed 5% versus risking in the market and people decide to put money in, into that guaranteed 5%. So that's extremely important. Also unprecedented, unprecedented in the context of high inflation, high interest rates, and high oil prices. Now we have very low net gas prices for a number of reasons. And a lot of people are getting extremely excited and saying, hey, the energy crisis is over. I mean, what gives? We don't have, we no longer have this concern about energy crises and net gas that we had before. And I would say put a big, big pause on that feeling of, we're done with the natural gas crises. We're done with the energy crises. And that's really because, um, and here's the big thing we're going to talk about in this introduction, is we're at the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. So um, tonight, it would be the, February 24th that Russia invaded Ukraine, called it a special military operation. Uh, Putin just had a big, per, or not big, a big talk where he had 200,000 people there in Russia. Um, lots, lots going on on that front um, that I cannot underscore enough. And there are risks to energy um, and commodities prices. Now, what has benefited natural gas so much is that we've had extremely, um, we've had a much warmer weather with unseasonably warm weather in, in winter weather where we've had less heating days needed, less days that where we need a lot of heating in the US and the same for Europe. So the weather has really saved Europe and they were able to take all the you know gas that they were getting before when they were getting it from Russia from the pipelines. They were able to store that. They were able to store a bunch of LNG um, exports as well. And then the U.S., we've just been producing so much, uh, so much natural gas, 122 BCF a day out of a 400 BCF a day global supply and demand market. We are over 30% of the entire global market. So massive amount of natural gas production, which is really driven. If you look at overall the entire course of 2022, we were north of $6 in MCF and at times at 10 that drove an incentive to produce natural gas, even in the oil plays. It drove an incentive to go after your condensate areas, your gasier areas, your NGL rich areas, stuff that was not sexier appealing before. Everybody's been going after that. And that helped drive natural gas production up. That being said, natural gas production, unless you are really shutting in and shutting down a bunch of activity, is not going to come off a cliff really quickly because if you have high oil prices, that's going to be maintained for as long. I mean, you're going to have 
high natural gas production with high oil prices because you have so much associated natural gas production in the U.S. And what's really interesting to me is when people are talking right now about, hey, is this energy crisis over? If you listen to CNBC or Bloomberg today, there was a lot of talk about that because we have such low nat gas prices. So right now at February 23rd, um, February 23rd, Thursday, um, 2023, we're looking at Dutch TTF at 1580. Um, we're looking at uh, Henry Hub at 234. We saw two bucks and we saw just about two bucks earlier this week. WTI is 7573 and Brent is 8221. So Everyone's getting really excited that we have these low natural gas prices, and this is on the back of so much volatility within the geopolitical space. So we have the foreign minister, Wang Li, from China going. He just met with Vladimir Putin in Russia. Um, we have China has put out two documents, a, an essay on, on U.S. Uh, hegemony and, and how bad the U.S. is and talking about the evilness of U.S. hegemony. That actually got way more coverage than I thought it would. Jinjua News put that out, and um, we heard I heard that folks on, on Bloomberg talking about that at length. I've read it. Um, it's a very staple, you know, Chinese piece ripping on the U.S. Um, so you have that. And then they, they've come out with this global security initiative document as well. That's really important in the context of this war and everything you're hearing out of the Biden administration, um, because this global security initiative, they've, Xi Jinping has uh, talked about it before, about a year ago, and this is something they're going to be harking upon. So as we're one year into this war in Ukraine, we have, uh, we have, Lots of stuff going on between China and Russia. Um, Biden went to Ukraine um, with a surprise visit and, and talked with Zelensky. This was to shore up support um, for everything that's going on. We have, the U.S. has spent way more, I mean, we're talking um, 10 times more money, billions and billions more than than our peer, our foreign peers um, in Europe. So there is some issues with uh, war fatigue already happening in Europe and how much money they're going to continue to spend on this. Um, probably war fatigue within the U.S. Congress in terms of how much money we are going to spend on this and what is the end in sight. So it's a serious issue to be talking about in the context of all this. And that gives China this nice little opening where China says, hey, we're going to be the brokers of peace. And so they're touting this, hence this paper and this talk on their global security initiative. Well, what's interesting is the Biden administration has come out and said, hey, um, and this is something I've been talking about for a long time. If you're looking for the single biggest funder of this war in Ukraine, it is China. So the trade between China and Russia has only went up just exponentially since for the last couple of years and very, very seriously over the course of 2022. So um, they are funding it, whether uh, directly or indirectly, but they are definitely funding it. And I would say it's China, so it's probably directly. And the Biden administration came out today and said, hey, um, actually, it's probably directly. Basically, that the state of China said, the government said, ordered or told companies that they could fund, you know, and work with this. They said it wasn't lethal, but they were probably funding this. So there's risk or potential risk of, of secondary sanctions on China. Now, so China's saying, hey, we're going to broker this peace deal and it's all going to be good. Um, that's really tricky in the context of potentially with, with Xi Jinping going to, um, going to Russia and potentially, I mean, there's rumor and talk that China is going to add, you know, give ammunition or give munitions to, act to Russia. So it, it, there is a reality where not just war fatigue, but Ukraine is drained of ammunition. Um, Russia is drained of ammunition. It could really change the course and trajectory of the war if China indeed decided to go give Russia a bunch more ammunition. Um, and we actually, 
the country of the, the Mer America, the U.S., has to resupply our ammunition supply that we have been giving. So does so does Western Europe that any every that they've been giving. So and they've been way behind the curve in their defense budgets and their defense programs in general. So there's a reality there, and that um, is another podcast in itself where we need to be talking about geopolitical risk and war and what's going on with China. But you can see that there's some really really serious issues with that if we're all drained. Now there's a theory too that hey. There's some positives in, in terms of we've drained Russia, but we're also drained in turn. Um, and then you have the U.S. today sending two more, 200, uh, 200, again, that's not a ton, but 200 additional troops to Taiwan for training. So there's clearly a lot going on in that space. And if people are feeling calm about the energy market, they really shouldn't. Um, now, that's... Uh, will probably likely hold up oil prices given so much geopolitical volatility and risk. But that being said, there's some... Um, and everyone's getting excited about, you know, lower natural gas prices and everything. And that, you know, oil at $75 and we have plenty of oil on the market, maybe this is positive. And, and if, if folks are backsliding into recession, you know, we're going to need less oil. Well, one, the other side of the world, it's really important to realize that the impacts of they're still, they still had a lot of subsidies on energy. So as a fo as countries in Asia roll back some of these subsidies because it's costing them so much money, you're going to see some real inflationary pressures within those countries. We're also seeing a lot of really scary talk on fertilizers of not having enough fertilizer because so much of this came from Russia and Ukraine. Um, and this impacts, obviously, the, the ability to plant food and your your crop yields. And natural grass is a big component of that. Um, the other thing is China has another, or uh, sorry, Russia has another lever. And that's because they have, uh, they're producing 11 million barrels per day. So if you look at the recent OPEC report, you'll see that they continue to revise those numbers up. So everyone really had Russia down for the count in really dropping oil production throughout the course of 2022. And they didn't. They dropped a little bit and then they came back. So they really ramped up production. Now, interestingly enough, Saudi Arabia is down to 10.3 million barrels a day. Russia is at 11 million barrels per day. So Russia could drop that production and, and theoretically impact oil prices. So I would not... I wouldn't I wouldn't be, um, you know, waving the big flag and saying, you know, hurrah, we're, we're, we fixed all these problems, because as long as you have an ongoing war, um, you have all these potential issues. And we have so many mixed uh, political and, and geopolitical issues with Russia, China and the U.S. right now that that's um, that's just not done by any means. And uh, we have seen Saudi being uh, incredibly mute at the moment on all of this. And with that, I think I'll leave you with one last thought, and that's that, you know, the majority of folks I spoke to, clients included, um, and a lot of industry lead folks in and outside the industry, but but uh, CEOs and leaders in the space, there was not very many people that really thought Putin would invade Ukraine. Um, he did invade Ukraine. And there were a lot of sort of people, I would say, in a sort of pacifist way of thinking, or just uh, maybe just a hopeful optimism, that the war would just somehow end. And we are a year into this war now. It has not ended. Um, and I think people have to really start realizing and appreciating the desire, the the hold that Putin has on this, the fact that he has done um, an incredible job within his country of controlling information, um, and lots of people have been dying of, of so-called suicides, etc. Um, but the control of information is very serious, and the economy has not backslid as much as people thought. So um, Russia has sort of maintained this, this thing much longer than people thought they would, and so that's what makes it so serious about where China's at on this and how much they, you know, the potential to increase efforts to, to aid aid Russia could be really, really serious. Um, and so, and, and the same thing for, for 
for Ukraine is that you've had uh, 8 million people leave Ukraine are in are in most of them are in um, Eastern Europe, a lot of them in Poland. So lots of lots of serious consequences to this that have ramifications that are going to go well past this this period. But the fact that we've entered a year into this and we have all these other things that we've been talking about um, the the comfort levels that folks have is not that you can't navigate this stuff, but it's that you really, really have to know the markets incredibly well. Um, and that is my pitch for Petronas because that is what I do on a day-to-day -day basis and that is what I do with clients. But I um, I had incredible reviews on the last podcast on part one. Um, if you haven't listened to it, you need to go back to the last episode 72. Um, but this is part th part two of State of Reality, my response to Joe Biden's State of the Union. Um, I The reviews have just been awesome from the first podcast. So thank you guys so much. Really hope you guys enjoy this and talk to you soon. Bye. Oh, 20 minutes to cover the rest of the world. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, people have not gone back to work. Uh, so that's reality. People actually have not gone back to work. Um, so we see we had a massive, massive jump in, jo in jobs figures in December. You saw that 500 517,000, that was way more than people expected. And that's where the Fed is in a really tricky spot because the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates steadily because they're combating inflation, um, but it's and and they need to increase unemployment. But unemployment is not increasing, and they need to cool the economy. But you've got these sticky parts. So we we have 3.4 percent unemployment. So we've got this this other half of the economy that I was talking about, and then you have job openings st are uh, still remain elevated. They actually came down and they're back up. Um, so that's a problem. There are not enough people looking for work. We're back at our record highs of two job openings per one applicant in December again. So you just don't have enough people back to work. And people always ask, you know, a year ago, people were really, really pushing me on. Well, why is this? And the reason this is the case is because you had so much fiscal stimulus. You had $27 trillion in global economic stimulus. And in the U.S., we contributed a massive amount of inflation. We led the world in inflation with Brazil and Turkey because we increased entitlement programs massively. And that is uncomfortable for people to talk about, but is 100% true. We had a government, we had a fiscal and monetary government on both sides spending so much money. And the Biden administration comes in and they approve all these packages and it's trillions here and it's trillions there and it's trillions there. Food stamps increased by one third. We had food inflation before everyone else did. And I'm not saying people don't need this stuff, but it was really, really serious. When you add this stuff that wasn't there, all the stimulus has impacted um, the ability for, uh, one impacted inflation, but it also had a lag where lots of people had checks, lots of people had money in the bank, people got checks for having kids, people got um, didn't have to pay rent for two years, students have not paid loans in three years, you've had hundreds of billions of dollars of debt not being paid off in student loans, and that is all fiscal lag that has contributed to people not coming back to the workforce, um, and people retiring, etc. Other not so good side of the story is uh, labor productivity, um, was actually down. It's, it's ticked up a smidge, but we're still down to where we were. You want to be continue on your labor productivity or your output per hour. You want to be going up. We um, sort of flat, we went down and we flatlined a little bit. That's not good. That does tell us that probably the work from home thing doesn't work for everyone. Um, there's, it just doesn't. There's a reality to that. And the real problem with that is that's your compensation. So compensation is way, way up. And that is a problem. This is, again, what the Fed is fighting, too, is spiraling wage inflation. So everybody wants more money. And, and Biden said on his State of the Union that people are making more money. You can look at every city and look at the inflation levels and look at how much increase in wages. And the inflation is higher than the increase in wages. So 
increasing wages doesn't matter if you're, if you're just combating inflation and then we're all just spending more money and we're not saving anything. And that inflation is just a massive tax on all of us and it is damning for the economy and it will send us into a very, very bad place if it's not taken care of. The other thing to watch is this, uh, see those upticks here in price of these, these are your wages and your compensation, private industry government. This is pre-2008 you know, crash. Um, most indicators that you look at, uh, I don't care if it's manufacturing, anything, we haven't even got to the bad point and we're higher than we were before. So there's a lot of talk on, is this gonna be a soft landing? Is it gonna be a hard landing? You know, we don't actually know, but it's gonna be a landing. And um, it's not, I don't think it's gonna be nearly as soft because we haven't really actually sifted through all the data. Um, so the white collar layoffs, we talked about this. That, that thing on the left, I just listed that. That's just layoffs in the last three days, just this week. That's the layoffs from this week alone. Um, and then you have this list on the left here, sorry, that's on the, on the other side. This list on the left here is just your percentages, but you, you have uh, from tech layoffs, from Amazon, uh, Microsoft, you name it, everybody's laying off people. And the seriousness of that is those are pretty high income jobs and those are people who did buy houses. And so we have not seen a lot of this trickle into, um, into the economy and society. Inflation is at 6.5%, it has come down. That is largely due to oil and gas prices. That is largely due to what you guys do in this business and pumping more oil and gas has contributed to this falling. Um, Electricity prices are at 14.3% inflation. That is unbelievably high. Um, and again, if we look back to our recession levels here in 2008, we're way, way ahead of that for all of these indicators. Food is still double digits and shelter, your home, is, hasn't even taken a breather and is at 7.5%. That's core inflation. So the Fed says, oh, well, you know, they kept saying deflationary. That's a bunch of bull because shelter is 7.5% and that is core inflation. And that is really tricky because it's also hard for the Fed because if they raise interest rates, then guess what gets harder to buy? Homes. Um, and then everybody has to rent and those shelter goes up. I w I've been in Georgetown. I go to DC about every quarter. And if you go in Georgetown, you just look at the real estate there. Over half during COVID, over half of the shops closed. And every quarter when I go back, more have closed. It is a ghost town in Georgetown. There are a few shops open and some restaurants, but people cannot afford the rent, so all these businesses just go under. And this is your thriving economy of Washington, D.C., of high-income people that are supposed to be rolling in and spending money. And folks, they're not spending money. Um, and so we are really seeing this. If you start talking to folks, especially on the high-income side, ask people. Ask how many people are, are skiing, how many high-income people are skiing, um, how many, on the high-end side, what's, what is it looking at? And you're gonna see that it doesn't look so great. Um, so Jamie Dimon talks about in his last earnings call, I, I sort of say it's like these are black swans, gray rhinos, whatever they call them, but we can see them. They're all out there. So if, you get, if we get shocked by one of these, it's going to be surprising to me because we know we have higher, he, he talks about inflation, higher rates, higher mortgage rates, volatility, war, and that we know all these things. Um, QT, quantitative tightening is a big deal. Sovereign debt mentions that multiple times. Those are big deals. And that we just have these sort of large uncertainties. And now he's talking about um, in the last couple of days, if, you've, if he did a Reuters interview, now Jamie Dimon is talking about interest rates may, you know, going well above 5%. He's mentioned this, he talked about it at Davos, and he basically it's, you know, inflation's gonna be stickier, so we're gonna have to raise interest rates higher and they're gonna have to be held. That's a reality. The Fed knows that too. They're just really, really bad at telling everyone. Jerome Powell is just getting a, he's getting a fail on terms of articulating to the market what the hell he needs and wants. And he's doing a bad job because he doesn't want to crash the market. Um, but the market, you know, is the stock market and it's not necessarily the economy or reality. 
Um, we have a lot of debt in the U.S. So this is U.S. total household debt. It's well over trillion or $16 trillion. We added over a trillion dollars alone in 2021. That's the highest single increase since 2007. That is your ding, ding, ding recession, 2007 levels. Um, yes, those were lower interest rate mortgages, but the actual just amount is just huge. It's a huge amount of debt, auto loans, everything. We have a huge amount of debt, and now we're slowing this, but we still have all this debt. Um, and so when you look at economies like Australia and New Zealand and London and, and the UK, we have a lot of similarities on this housing side. And the run-up in housing prices, we haven't seen those prices come down yet, um, so no one's just buying them. So it's, it's a very tricky problem. We also have credit card balances are at new highs. We're almost uh, we're, we're over $931 billion at a record high for credit balances, and savings rates have plummeted. So when people say the consumer's doing well, they are not. They're putting on their credit cards. And the credit card balances are huge. I was dinged 50 bucks for being um, by Apple Pay for being uh, six hours late because I didn't get the notification on New Year's Eve. And I was pissed at having 850 credit score and getting dinged 50 bucks. That is 50 bucks for six hours. I can imagine a lot of people have much, much higher dings um, for being a day or two or three because when interest rates are rising, it is very, very painful. And everybody, when you're putting your debt on your credit cards and you got these high interest rates, this is going to this is going to balloon and um, create a problem in the future. Uh, so interest rates, unemployment. The takeaway here is that in May of 1980, you had 14.7% inflation. In January of 1981, you had a 19.1% interest rate, and then two years later, you had 10.8% unemployment. The pain of the economy, the unemployment side, lags. It takes nearly two years for that to feel an effect. When, when the U.S. housing crisis happened, that was 2008. When unemployment peaked, it was 2010. So it is a very different story. So for all of us sort of looking at this and saying, we're not in recession or we're, are we going to recession, the pain of that recession and the real unemployment, we will be feeling later. And that sucks, but it's reality. Also, the reality is that inflation kills your economy. You won't have any jobs to talk about. That's why it's so serious is that if, when you have these wage price spirals and everything, that tax just keeps going up and up and up. You can't save money and you just get into a really bad situation. And we've never experienced high oil prices and high inflation. So this is your crude oil prices um, dating back to the 70s and green, and that's inflation. And so we had pretty actually low even when we had high oil prices and high inflation. But then we came in line and we were easy peasy. Even when we had high oil prices where we can all remember, we didn't have high inflation. And now we have both. And that is extremely damning. And this whole geopolitical side makes this really complicated. 30-year um, mortgages around 7%. Um, yes, they're moving around like crazy because the stock market wants to bake in a Fed pivot, which isn't happening. So when you see mortgage rates go down, just try to buy a house. I'm pretty sure you're going to be dinged. It. It's going to look like over 7%, which means most people are not getting approved because most people can't hit the monthly payment um, because it's gone up so, so much. Um, so your buying conditions for your large household durables, your refrigerators, your, um, your appliances um, are at record lows, just absolutely record lows for your buying conditions from, from a survey perspective. And your buying conditions for houses are at record lows too, because not just because high interest rates and you can't afford it, but because everything else for the consumer is so poor. And so these are just the data points that are not well articulated in the market. Um, I'll keep throwing this up there. It's, it's, we're sort of out of whack, but oil demand in the US and home prices usually rise and fall together. Last year, we continued to see rising home prices, even though we didn't see a lot of sales in home prices. And we've sort of flatlined in oil demand. Um, globally, oil demand doesn't really take a massive breather in terms of huge, huge corrections for recessions. Um, in 2008, we only lost. We lost a sub 
one, two million barrels a day globally, but we were the driver of that. And so at a 20 million barrel a day demand market, we moved the needle pretty significantly. And so in the 80s, we lost 3.7 million barrels a day of demand. It took a decade for that to recover. That's huge. Um, and we lost two and a half million barrels a day in 2008. And it took years, it took several years for that to recover. So it's really important to think about what is going on with the economy, what's going on with recession, what's going on with oil demand. Um, okay, global economy, also not good. All the things that we just talked about for you know food inflation and housing inflation, all these things, th that's happening globally. And you think about the bottom half of America and how painful that is for America, Americans, think about globally, everyone else who makes significantly less money than we do. In, in the poor parts of Africa, in the Middle East, food inflation is killing them. And not just that food inflation, but fertilizer costs because of high natural gas costs. Now fertilizer costs have gone up and now they're not planting with fertilizer, so they're gonna have low crop yields, so they're even gonna have less food. So it's a very vicious cycle that's um, gonna be playing out for years to come. But hey, you know, at Davos, the chancellor of, of Germany, Olaf Scholz, said that they weren't going into recession, so we can believe that. Um, I'm sure that's true. Um, it's not true, I'm absolutely joking. Um, they're basically, Europe's already in recession, whether they say it or not. Um, you've got Olaf Scholz going to China um, with 12 CEOs. At, you know, he, Germany was the one that basically signed everybody on to taking out this Russian gas, and now they go to China, and they want to do more business because um, they're just not very good at making business decisions, apparently, um, and understanding how trade dynamics work. Um, the head of the European Central uh, the European Commission um, spent her entire speech at Davos talking about clean tech and Europe being the clean tech hub um, and how exposed they were to China, but they still wanted to be the clean tech hub. Um, you had uh, China talking about how how green and clean they were and how they're committed to being green and clean. And then you had Fatih Barol at the IEA um, touting his same stuff about uh, clean tech and lowering emiss emissions and getting to that 2050 net zero. Um, which is a complete pivot from what he would say even five years ago when he was touting how great U.S. shale was. Um, U.K. inflation, just for an example, we are, is still above 10 percent. That that is just a it, we they weren't even close to that in the 80s. You know, so their 10 percent is massively painful. So that is recession territory, whether anyone wants to believe it or not. And those electricity prices were you can see the ramp up in them. That happened in the fall of 2021. So the ramp up in electricity prices happened in the fall of 2021, which happened when none of the renewables, the, the, the wind power and the solar power didn't pan out in the UK, didn't pan out in Europe, nor did hydro. And actually from a, a weather perspective, all those sort of fall together. They don't actually, they tend not to work at the same time. And then they, they had to draw on natural gas. Well, they didn't have a on natural gas. So when you decarbonize your grid and then you need the stuff that you don't have, this is what creates the price spikes. That doesn't mean that product is not reliable. It means that the grid is not reliable. Um, so back to massive, that's prices and fertilizer, prices and food globally, really bad. Um, this is the map of your war in Ukraine. So we are a year in now to this war. The point of this is that there is no end in sight to this, and there is no sort of how will we end this, where will this go. Um, I do believe this is a pawn move and a much longer game. Uh, China and Russia are, are, you know, China's funding this war. Nobody wants to talk about that. Everybody wants to talk about how evil Putin is. Not a good guy. This is really bad. Um, but we do have to talk about the bigger alpha in the room, which is China and the funding of this war. So that's basically where we're at. They've carved a chunk of Ukraine right there. Um, Ukraine doesn't want to uh, talk about you know peace deals in terms of carving off the country, but that's where probably the rest of the world is going to go because they want this to end. And now we've got this big offensive campaign going on. 
Um, natural gas flows into Europe have absolutely plummeted. Um, those are all those all the main conduits. Nord Stream, the main conduit, that went down to zero. Then you had the pipelines being sabotaged. That's never going to flow again. Um, and then you have you still have a little bit coming through Turkey and a little bit coming through Ukraine. But the biggest takeaway on this story is the what not to do. Don't decrease your domestic output and give it to a country that you do not have anything in common with, both from an uh, you know, economic standpoint, from a democratic standpoint, from an anything standpoint. Um, I would liken this to China a lot um, in terms of everything going on, but this is 55 BCF a day of gas consumption in Europe and 20 BCF a day of gas production. So they didn't decrease their consumption, they did decrease their production, and so you have this exposure to exposure for imports that's just massive, and they relegated all this to, to Russia. And so Russia basically was importing 16 BCF a day of pipeline imports. So it's a huge number, and then another two BCF a day LNG. So they gave a lesser economic power, not a superpower, a superpower from a nuke standpoint, but uh, all the leverage in the world that they needed to wage a war on them. And this is what happened. Um, so this is a, you know, a statement to the world of what not to do. Um, and now Europe's doubling down on, on their green policies, thinking that will fix it. And there's a number of reasons why that won't. Um, and I know I'm over, so just bear with me. Um, okay, Russian oil production outlook coming down. It's about 10 million barrels a day. This is probably a, a bigger risk to the market than we realize of if they drop a million barrels a day this year. If demand is faltering, probably not going to matter too much in a recessionary environment. But uh, they've been way more resilient in terms of their economy and in terms of oil production. And that's for a number of different reasons. We can get into that in Q&A. They're not a super diversified economy, so they should have been a little more resilient than people expected. Um, but the discount on, on their crude is massive. Everyone is taking it, um, except for Europe. And they're still taking it actually via pipeline. They're just not taking it via ship. So the, the crude is just moving around the world. And countries like India and Italy and China are benefiting from massive crude oil discounts. Um, also something to be appreciated in the global economy in terms of that discounted crude. Um, Chinese trade with Russia, you can just see it's, it's perfectly in line. And that has really ramped up in the last year or so. Um, so they, when we took them off the SWIFT system and we, we reduced Russia's access to money and funding and everything, China stepped in and he gave it to them. They are benefiting from this in terms of they're getting cheap grain, they're getting cheap coal, they're getting more gas, they're getting more oil. Um, and this is a long-term relationship. Um, when they came out in February, about three weeks before the war, and they said, they, they put out this document and they, they reaffirmed their relationship, they said, quote, there are no forbidden areas of cooperation. And then they talked about their sovereignty and their reinforcement. And this has continued for over a year. This was, this was going on in 2021. It's really serious, um, especially when we talk about balloons over the US, everything. Um, so we should get straight on net zero. And this is, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. So I promise you, um, we're, we're nearing the end here. Um, this is IEA's net zero. Um, and the reason this is so serious is that 2030 is 75 million barrels a day of demand. Now, that would crush not just that would crush the US economy, it would crush the world economy. We cannot get to 75 million barrels a day of demand by 2030 unless we cratered the economy. Um, and, and we all just went into a cave and we shut in the economy just like we did for COVID and we didn't even drop 25 million barrels a day then. It's impossible. And we saw the economic devastation for that. But that's what net zero is. So when everybody signs on to net zero, just know that that's what you're signing on to. So we have to be very careful with this terminology. And then you have the IEA as of October saying, the world is struggling with too little clean energy, not too much. Faster clean energy transitions would have helped moderate the impact of this crisis, and they represent the best way out of it. And their answer 
is 100% wind and solar. So is BP's. Is that so? We drop our oil demand, we fix the emissions problems, and we just add a bunch of wind and solar into the grid, and we solve everybody's problems. Now, as we all know, we drive our cars and we use crude oil largely for that. Now, with this crisis, we've we've actually increased solar. We've actually increased power usage for crude oil um, by a lot because we haven't natural gas prices were so high. But by and large, we use crude oil to drive cars, and we we electricity. Um, is what turns the lights on in here. So they're not the same, but we talk about them interchangeably. Oil demand, so just keep it in your back pocket for a second. So that's IEA's oil demand. That's in green, that's 2030, 75 million barrels a day. BP, interesting. This is, they have the same thing. This is their, they're, they're on the same trajectory for net zero, but they're 85 million barrels a day demand. So not as much, which works well for their narrative, for their company and everything. 85 million barrels a day, that's still not gonna happen. Um, little bit more realistic, but OPEC's share of production grows in all scenarios because if we reduce our output, that's what's most interesting. This is OPEC's share of production historically. This is what their share of production will be in all of these scenarios. That's insane. So we're just basically going to say, okay, in the democratic world, in, in the UK, in Europe, in Norway, and in the US, we will decrease our production. We'll just hand it off to you. And that's just not going to be the case, but that's what it would look like if we did. Um, nat gas demand, in uh, no matter the scenario, well, actually, so it doesn't necessarily, it either craters or goes up. So you, that gets really confusing. But solar and wind, no matter what, goes up. Um, so the answer is solar and wind. And this is where I say I have a problem with renewables. That's your iHeart net zero. All these, every company jumped on the bandwagon with this. Um, I disagree with that, as I've talked about. So global power generation by fuel type. This is the slide that we haven't stopped using coal. We have not stopped using oil. We have basically not, we have not, never had an energy transition. Um, we stopped killing whales. Uh, we save the whales. Oil saves the whales with whale oil, you know, using actually oil instead of whale oil. Um, but you can see this is your renewables. This is wind and solar that has increased into the global power capacity. Just because you increase this doesn't mean you get all of it, right? Because the wind does not always blow, the sun does not always shine. And also, you have to replace this. So something I want to push people to think about is the real cost of renewables. So levelized cost of energy, most people know is kind of a BS figure. But the reality is it costs. It costs to buy it, um, and it costs to put it into the grid. And it it's massively subsidized by the governments. It's massively subsidized by us. So we have to start asking, how much does it really cost, and what's it doing to the economy? Um, we lost a record amount of energy production, a primary energy production in the US during during COVID. And as I've sort of tried to lead you in, into this on the geopolitical side, the consequences of this are really big. If we're reducing our energy production, including coal, which I don't necessarily we should be necessarily reducing, doesn't mean you have to use all the coal, but you may want it. It's a very secure form of energy. You do not have to pipe it. You can truck it, you can put it on a rail car, you can stack it up to your power plant, and you can burn it when you need to. So when we were turning, we're shutting down all of our coal-fired power generation in the name of changing the environment, which we're not doing, and China's adding it, we're in a really hard situation of reality. Plus, I have a big problem with, um, you know, yes, natural gas is better than coal. The folks that don't like natural gas also don't like coal. That is Bloomberg Philanthropies. They have a no more gas campaign, which is also a no more coal campaign, which is also and gas, so they don't like that either. So you just, we're in a tricky situation here because it, nothing is light. Um, this is all power generation capacity, a heat map in China. China has, just so we get the numbers straight because everybody talks about it, over 8,500 terawatt hours of, 1,000 terawatt hours of power generation, okay? So total, that black is coal. Um, 
This is the province of Xinjiang. This is where you have the human rights abuses, forced labor, internment camps, concentration camps. Um, it's also where you have a lot of increased activity in auto manufacturing. Um, China has increased coal, coal production massively. There are over 400 million tons. Um, so Chinese coal-fired power plants, for, so for all the ones that we're reducing, we are, um, you know, we are screwing ourselves because we'll shut down a coal-fired power plant, we'll get rid of all of our jobs, um, and we leave these ghost towns where I'm from, like Craig, Colorado, where in China you're at, you have 200 in construction, you have over 3,000 operating, you have 121 announced, you have 106 permitted, you have 122 in pre-permit stages. And when you look at the power generation, and I am almost done, um, when you look at the power generation breakout, that's just your 400, that's your terawatt hours. That's UK, and that's Russia. So a lesser power has more ability to produce electricity. And that should give you a little pause in terms of what are we doing, what's going on, what could we use for that power generation. It's probably to, you can build stuff, you can build ammunition, you can do stuff. This is Europe and the US power generation by fuel together. So that's the West. This is our democratic superpowers. We flatlined, we're 8,000, and that's China. Um, so they have more power generation capacity than we do combined. Um, and China dominates the solar and manufacturing industry, completely dominates from, from soup to nuts, from um, where it's sourced to how it's processed. They own all of it. And they produce it in the province of Xinjiang and they do produce it with forced labor and it has kept their labor costs down and it does allow them to subsidize this massively. So when people are putting this on the roofs and they're feeling good about themselves, you really do have to have pause on that. And then not just that, but you have to ask the question of how expensive is it because that is free labor. So they've, they've definitely curbed that. So that's the province of Xinjiang. This is from the Chinese 14th five-year plan, their own document. And they, it, is a, it is a powerhouse for energy. Um, that's why you produce your solar panels there and your auto, your, your auto equipment and everything because you have a lot of coal and you can heat it up and you can make it. Um, solar exports from China to Europe increased by 86% in the first 10 months of 2022. Now, Europe thinks that's really great because even though that's forced labor and that's really bad, that now they have energy security. Unfortunately, you have to replace solar and you do have to replace wind. Um, so you have to buy this stuff again. And, um, you know, China isn't known for producing the best stuff in the world either. So you'll have to buy this stuff again. So the, uh, the supply chain issues are really, really serious. The ESG issues, this is your real ESG issue. And lastly, um, electricity consumption, if we just, and this is the last, is that's electricity consumption in China, the US, and Europe. Um, and then you have electricity consumption, industrial electricity consumption. And you can see that's China in red and the US and Europe. And I, I'll just you know, throw it out there of what do, you, what do they intend to do with that ele industrial electricity consumption? And what does that mean for us if we don't have that output and we've said, hey, we want you to make our t-shirts, we want you to make our batteries, we want you to make all this stuff. It is not just um, t-shirts and batteries and cars. It is the ability to make other things. And when we've relegated that to other countries, one countries we don't agree with, you end up in a situation like you have with Russia and Europe. And with that, thank you very much. perception of net zero and what that does to emissions globally, we all share the same atmosphere. Is that just a complete fallacy if we continue down that path? It is a complete fallacy because we 
this entire industry could go to net zero, could to, this entire industry could massively reduce emissions, and it's a drop in the bucket. U.S. oil and gas production is 1% of U.S. total emissions, so it means diddly squat. And we're, they're not, China's really not measuring their emissions. They're doing what they need to do as a country that they believe they need to do. They're very messy. It's sort of haphazard how they do things. Um, but the stuff that's going on in places like Xinjiang where we actually don't see anything, we don't know what's going on in the province of Xinjiang because they've kept it under wraps. Um, and you, we do know that they've subsidized a lot, uh, tons of industries and incentivized them to move to Xinjiang. And they've incentivized a lot of processing for dirty, the dirty stuff, metals and minerals and everything, because they don't have the environmental standards. Um, so when we're buying wind, you know, wind turbines and solar panels, and not just that, buying the actual it, transmission equipment and everything, we're buying that from them. It is coming from coal-fired power generation. So that's going up. So it makes these, it makes the West feel better. It does diddly squat, and it really shifts the power dynamics, and it destabilizes our grid. So when you're shoving wind and solar into the grid to the rate we're all trying to do, you get these spikes in energy prices, and it's it's very, very problematic. So it is, is, is kind of full on why I'm, I am very, um, I, I'm going to have to see a really strong argument for why, how wind and solar makes sense. It would have to be made here, and it would have to be economic. Um, it's not economic, and it's definitely not made here. Any other questions? Um, so I don't think we did. I think if anything, either it was, uh, I think the Russian government probably did. Um, but if the Russian government didn't, it was probably a, um, a rogue, fat, like a folks that, the hardliners within Russia that probably pushed Putin to do it. Um, so I, d I don't think it was the US. I, I'm not sure, you know, Biden's calling those shots exactly anyway. Um, but I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think they did that. Um, and they're not, pr there is literally nobody in the U.S. administration that understands hydrocarbons full stop. Like they don't have the intellectual capacity. They have not hired anyone because they're so pushing the renewable side. So they wouldn't have the knowledge to even do that in the first place. Um, and, uh, but that is something people talked about. And plus that would be beneficial to U.S. hydrocarbons. They don't understand how they work, how the geopolitics works. So I don't think they would do it. Um, and I, most likely it is, it's Russia making a very firm statement. And I thought it was pretty clear to Europe saying, because if you, European leaders, before that sabotage of that pipeline happened, did believe that Russian gas would eventually flow within a year or two or whatever it was, that the war would end and they would just go back to normal. That's mind blowing that one, they could even conceive that, that they would be okay with that. Um, but two, it lets them live in their, their fictitious world where they get to pretend to be green and they get this, this gas from Russia and they don't care about the war or the human rights abuse or anything. Um, so they believe that. And then the pipeline got sabotaged. And to me, that is a statement by Russia saying the gas is not going to flow. This war is serious. You're not taking it seriously enough. It is going to be long term. And the gas is done. And it didn't hurt Russia that much to cut off the gas. It hurt Europe a lot. And it's sort of a, a, a full case in point of maximum pain, maximum leverage with little, little, yes, there's an impact to Russia, but it's not nearly the impact it is to Europe. Awesome. We've got time for one more and then I'm going to wrap it up. With, um, you mentioned in your Saudi debt, and Jimmy Dimon was talking about it. So, what is your view or thought on, on when is the, I know more probably debt is in US dollars or in, on, in currency, but at what point in time is it just 
too much or the world says enough of America or is there a deal from the sovereign debt is too much? Um, so I think there's a couple things on sovereign on debt overall. So I, I would say, you know, quantitative tightening, sovereign debt, interest rates, a lot of it has to do with the concerns are that, you know, we raise as we raise interest rates, countries that are pegged to the dollar have to do the same thing. Um, and that the debt levels around the world are, you know, are, are pretty significant. So they're, they're sort of like sovereign debt levels around the world, you know, health of emerging markets, how good they are. And everybody wants to bet on them and they're super excited about China, but there's, there's massive, massive debt levels. So that's a little bit separate from then, you know, U.S. debt levels. And yes, the debt ceiling and what Congress approving everything, it's, it is serious. I mean, our debt levels are high and, and we as taxpayers will be paying that. We have to pay more as interest rate, you know, with, with our interest rates and, and just the interest on this debt is, is huge. Um, but we are still the cleanest, dirtiest shirt in the closet. We were in 2008, so when the economy sort of corrects, you know, people still want to pummel, you know, float, push the money into the U.S. because we have the most uh, liquid, transparent, uh, you know, treasury market in the world. So our assets are very, you know, you can see, you know what you get. Even with all the, the yucky with it around it, you actually know what you get. There's almost no country in the world that is quite as transparent and has a liquid market. Um, so I don't see in terms of are people just going to like pull out of U.S. Treasuries massively? No, I don't see that. I mean, the fact that we can go, you can go to negative rates and, and people still put the money in and they actually are paying um, sort of proves that. But you have, a, when you have, you know, e economic crises or any financial crises are never one thing. There are a myriad of things that usually come together. And so I think Jamie Dimon, without, I mean, he talks about this of what they do in their boardroom is what I do with clients is like, you talk, you go through everything. You, you know, what does the war with Taiwan look like? This is what you're doing. You're scenario planning this out. Does this matter today? No. Does it matter six months from now? Maybe. Does it matter a year from now? Maybe. But the sovereign debt levels are the same thing of, of you know, does a, certain countries, are they not able to pay their debt? And how does that, I mean, it, Italy would be a great example. Um, you know, what did Europe look like during the late 2000s and post-financial crises? And then where have they come now? We've sort of like sputtered through, but what does it mean now? I mean, those are all sort of implications that to tie it up neat with a bow, that none of it's been tied up neat with a bow. So you have a lot of debt out there, and now you have rising rates. Thanks, Chris. Can we get one more round of applause for Chris? <laughs>